0: please take your bibles now and turn together to first kings chapter 19 first kings chapter 19 this is a one of the more well-known parts of the life of elijah we're not going to tackle it all tonight we're just going to look at the first eight verses of first kings 19 together tonight There is an outline in in your bulletin if you'd like to make use of that. But once again, let us give our careful attention to the Word of God. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in 1 Kings, and so just glance back at 1 Kings 18. Remember where we are in the story. Uh, The Lord has shown his power and existence on Mount Carmel. Uh, The prophets of Baal have been put to death. Uh, The Lord has sent rain And uh, Elijah's there waiting at Jezreel, wondering how is the palace going to respond to all of this. And we will pick up with the story at verse 1 of chapter 19. So please once again hear God's word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him arise and eat and he looked and behold there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again and the angel of the lord came again a second time and touched him and said arise and eat for the journey is too great for you and he arose and ate and drank and when in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. We will end our reading of God's word there. Let's stop and ask for God's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would come to us as weak and weary pilgrims tonight. Not by an angel. Not by a messenger, but by your living and active word that you have for us tonight here in 1 Kings 19. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us. We pray that you would enable us by faith to see you in your goodness and grace. To see the Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest who sympathizes with us. Lord, as we've just sung in Psalm 103, you, you know our frame. You are the one who has made us. You know that we are merely dust. We are like the flower that quickly fades. But Lord, as we come to your word tonight, we are reminded that though the flower fades, your word never does. It lasts forever, and so does your love for your people. And so, Lord, help us to see that tonight. Minister to us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we left Elijah and 1st Kings several weeks ago, we left at a high point in the story. God had been victorious in an awesome display of power on Mount Carmel. Baal was utterly humiliated and defeated and shown to be a fraud. The people cried out with one voice, the Lord, he... Is God. Baal's prophets had been put to death. Elijah had prayed fervently, and God had finally sent rain. It was a high point. It was a glorious story. But as we saw last time, it was also a pivotal point, a point of uncertainty as Elijah waited at Jezreel, wondering how would Ahab respond? How would Israel respond to God's power and his grace? How would Jezebel respond who had not yet heard the story? Well, things unravel very quickly. Things change very quickly. We go from this great high to this great low. And Elijah finds himself in despair as he hears bad news. As he runs far away. But what we see is that God is merciful to him. God preserves his life. God shows his goodness and his grace as his servant is weak and weary and discouraged. And Elijah had lost sight of this. He had lost sight of God's sovereignty. He forgot that God was on the throne and he was carrying out his plan. And this is all so very easy for us to do in this world. In this world of sin and evil, this world of temptation and suffering. This text is one that we can relate to, many of you in this room can relate to in various ways and at various times in your life. And maybe some of you even tonight feel something of this deep weariness and weakness that Elijah experienced. Something of this sense of defeat and despair. Some of you know the shock of bad news. Some of you know these faint words. It is enough. But the good news of this text of God's word is that God knows and God cares and He is on His throne and He is gracious and He's merciful. And he sent his own son, his son who can sympathize with Elijah and sympathize with you and me, with sinners under broom trees. And he is the ultimate hope and the ultimate remedy. He is the ultimate comfort in despair and in defeat because he has conquered sin and death. He's conquered all of his enemies and he is working all things together according to his plan, even when we don't see it or understand it. And so this story of running, this story of defeat and despair offers hope to us tonight as God's people. It calls you to faith in Jesus. It calls you to look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God's word tonight calls you in despair to remember that he is sovereign. In despair, remember that he is good. And remember he is full of grace. Remember his son. And put your faith in him. Fix your eyes on him. People of God, in despair, remember God's sovereignty, goodness, and grace. Well, Let's look more closely together at this part of the story in 1 Kings 19 and I want us to see, first of all, Elijah running for his life. Elijah running for his life. As we enter into the text tonight, Ahab shares with Jezebel all that took place. Everything that went down on Mount Carmel, including the killing of all of her prophets. And did you notice that he tells her what Elijah did? He doesn't tell her what the Lord did. He leaves the Lord out. Elijah is the enemy. Elijah is the problem. And Jezebel sadly responds not with humility, not with repentance and faith, not with a a new fear of God. She responds with fury. And anger, and she sends this death threat to Elijah, making it perfectly clear her response to all of this, making it perfectly clear that she wants him dead within 24 hours. Jezebel's heart is even more hardened after God's amazing display of grace and power. And Elijah hears this, he is hit with this shocking bad news like a ton of bricks. And he's devastated. All of his hopes of Ahab repenting, Israel turning to the Lord, are dashed. The the fire, the rain, the judgment of God, the clear display of God's existence and power, his justice and his mercy, that all seems to have the opposite effect. And it has the opposite effect on Jezebel than he hoped for. I want you to put yourself in Elijah's shoes at this point of the story. Imagine finding that your great life work, what you had poured yourself into, what you had prayed for and pleaded with God for, what you'd been exiled for, what you'd risked your life for, all seems dashed in a moment. And then on top of that, you hear that your life is in danger from someone who has killed many prophets Before This is no empty threat. Uh, She will see that Elijah is put to death. But before we consider Elijah's response to this, what can we learn from this? Just these first two verses. Well, we've seen this already many times before in the life of Elijah. God's ways are not our ways. God's plans are, are not often and not always our plans. What else do we see here? We see the the, the desperate evil and hardness of the human heart. Jezebel is wicked. Yes, she's an extreme. But all sinners left in their sins, apart from God's grace, apart from God's spirit, all sinners reject God, reject his grace. Suppress the, the knowledge of Him. And no amount of information, no amount of truth and evidence can change a heart without God Himself working new life in that heart, working repentance and faith by His Spirit. We also see here that in God's plan, faithfulness does not always produce visible fruitfulness. Faithfulness doesn't always bring fruitfulness, at least as defined by us or Elijah. And a lack of fruit does not mean failure. Elijah is about to run and despair, thinking he has failed. But he has been faithful by God's grace. He has done what God had called him to And it was simply not God's plan to bring the fruit of widespread repentance in Israel. It was not God's plan to bring Jezebel to saving faith. And that was not Elijah's fault. That was God's mysterious sovereign plan. But Elijah has lost sight of this, and we can make the same mistake. And we can mistakenly think, well, if I'm just faithful, if I'm obedient God will do X, Y, or Z. Fill in the blank. If I just do this, the church will grow. I'll I'll be prosperous. I won't suffer. Life will be easy and, and go to plan, and God will be glorified. Well, God calls us to faithfulness, absolutely. But, friends, life will go according to His plan, not ours. Life will go according to his decree, not our desire. He will be glorified, but often in ways we won't see as glorious. Remember what we heard in Psalm 127 already tonight. Unless the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord watches the city. It is the Lord who must carry out his plan. It is the sovereign God who must Change hearts and change nations and grant repentance and life. Well, how does Elijah respond to this shocking, sad, and bad news? Look at verse 3. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And left his servant there. Then he was afraid. Our text says he was afraid. This is actually better translated. And when he saw, he arose and ran. And you'll see that in some other translations or in the footnotes. But when Elijah sees, when he saw, when he sees the situation, when he sees Jezebel's response, when he sees there is no change No repentance. He runs for his life. Now, is he afraid? Perhaps. But is he the coward here, as some say that he is? I think it's doubtful. Elijah is really not afraid to die. We find out a few verses later he wants to die. I think he doesn't want his life to be taken by Jezebel, who will use that to further idolatry, who would use that to further break off God's people from his word. He wants no victory for evil and for the cause of Baal. I don't think Elijah's actually running in sinful fear here. In fact, later he's affirmed and provided for in his journey further south by the angel. Now, could there have been sinful fear in Elijah's heart? Absolutely, and certainly at this point, he is taking his eyes off of God, and he's fixed on what he can now see with his earthly eyes. But unlike before, now there is no clear word from God. There's no direction, at least in our text, as to what he should do. God had not told him what to do now or where to go next. I think it's noteworthy that God lets him be tipped off about Jezebel's plan. God lets him be warned by this messenger. Jezebel could have just sent someone to kill him, but instead he's warned. And Elijah's not wrong in and of itself to want to preserve his life. Now, if God had called him explicitly to to stay and to face Jezebel and to die then and there, then his running would have been wrong. It would have been sinful fear. But it wasn't time for Elijah to to die. God was not done with him and his ministry. And we're going to see that again in this same text. And so he runs. He hears this word and he runs. He runs far to the south, almost out of Judah, to Beersheba. And he leaves his servant there. Now, was there anything significant of him running to Beersheba? Well, The text doesn't tell us, but Beersheba is a very significant place. Beersheba is where the patriarchs sojourned, when God's people were few, when they still did not own the land. And so Beersheba recalls God's covenant promises to his patriarchs and to his people, promises that God in time kept and fulfilled. He made them into a great nation. He gave them that very land. But now perhaps Elijah, he's there in Beersheba, is thinking, what of those promises? How could, how could they remain his people? How can they remain in the land forsaking him and driving out his prophet? Now I'm the sojourner. And so he runs to Beersheba. As he gets this shocking bad news, he responds in a very human way with weakness, sin, frailty, doubt. He takes his eyes off of God's sovereignty, God's goodness and grace. And so next we see Elijah, second tonight, despairing of his life. We see Elijah despairing of his life. Now all alone, Elijah goes even further away into the wilderness, and he sits down under this broom tree, this shrub. The man of prayer, the great prophet who just stood so tall high on Mount Carmel, now sinks down under this tree and utters a very different kind of prayer. Verse 4, he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. The Bible is the word of God. It gives us true history of real people, real events, and it is honest. It's raw and unfiltered. And we see that here. Here is perhaps one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. And he is a mess. He is in despair. He's he feels defeat. He's speaking words that really aren't true. He wants to quit. He's saying enough is enough. I can't take anymore. And the Bible doesn't hide this from us. It doesn't sugarcoat the despair and the depression, the very human response, the doubt and the discouragement. The Bible speaks to us. The Bible speaks to you as real people who understand and and have these feelings. And Elijah says here, it is enough. He's worn down. He's worn out by the evil By the hardness of heart in Israel, by the refusal of God's people to repent. And he thinks if what took place on Mount Carmel has not brought revival, then there is nothing left for me to do. If that doesn't convince them, it's enough. I quit. I am I'm out. I'm done. God, I give up. Just just let me die. I'm no better than my fathers. Let me die like my fathers. I've been just as ineffective as my fathers before me. Previous prophets. God, your people are so lost. They are too far gone. I'm no better at bringing them back. And so my job is done. I I can't go on. Elijah's despairing because of the spiritual state of Israel. And because of his apparent failure, I'm no better than my father's. What he doesn't see here is God's plan. God's goodness. God's wisdom. He doesn't see how all the the past events come together for anything good in the mind of God. And he's lost all hope. He's taken his eyes off of God and, and his truth and his power. He wants to throw in the towel. He wants it all to end. Notice here also how he's all alone. And he feels all alone as well. That comes out later in the chapter. He'll express that I, even I, only am left and they want me dead. Elijah also at this point may be feeling the absence of God's word. I've mentioned this before, but unlike previous chapters, God has not told him, at least in, our, in the scriptures, God has not told him his plan right now, where to go and what to do. And friends, when we feel alone, and when we cannot hear or see God's word, it can bring this despair. What else do we see here? Elijah is physically and emotionally drained. He is completely wiped out. He, he had been on a roller coaster. He had had that great run before Elijah's chariot and the downpour. He had had that tremendous spiritual high on Mount Carmel. He, he'd had the necessary trauma of putting to death the 450 prophets of Baal, and then the wonder of God sending rain. But then, just after that, the shock and the, the threat to his life from Jezebel. This man has been through a lot. He has been in the heart of the battle, in the front lines, and it is all too much. It is enough, and he's so tired, he falls asleep under this tree with no bed. And often times of despair and doubt, fear and weakness for the Christian can be a complex web of many of these things that we see in Elijah's life a a lack of faith a lack of sleep a sin loneliness mental physical exhaustion hunger sorrow shock and so Elijah utters this sad and and really sinful prayer he voices his desire to quit to die and it's not right Prayer is not the response of faith. This is not the man of God, the man of faith that we've seen so far. But what we do see is that here is a man like us. As James 5 says about him, here is a mere man, a man with our nature, a man with a human nature and a sinful nature. But notice, even in this prayer with so little faith, even in this Sinful, selfish prayer, even though it's understandable. Who is he praying to? Who is he crying out to? He's praying to the Lord. He is not asking for the right thing. But he is asking the right one. And you see similar prayers and desires in Job. You see it in Moses. You see it in the Psalms. And the Bible does not hide this. God knows. God hears. God sympathizes with us in our weakness. And God's own son came and never sinned. So that he might be our great high priest and savior. Well, we've seen the response of our poor embattled prophet, all alone under the tree, exhausted, weak, and weary in despair. But what is God's response? How does God deal with this poor man? Well, I think God's response is beautiful and comforting and full of grace and patience. So let's consider third and finally tonight the sustaining of his life. Sustaining of his life. The story goes beyond our text tonight, and we're going to get there next week, Lord willing. There's going to be more interaction between God and Elijah, and God will have more to teach Elijah. But I want you to look closely at what God does for Elijah right now at this point in the story when he is in despair and he wants to die. I want you to see the gentle love the goodness and grace of God to this weak, weary servant. First of all, remember, Elijah is all alone. So what does God do? God sends an angel to him. And so Elijah is no longer alone. God is gracious. God provides. What else? Elijah is extremely exhausted. He is utterly spent. God lets him sleep. God gives him rest. The angel wakes him, but then he lets him sleep again. Elijah's hungry and weak. What does God do? God gives him food and water. He's in despair, and God sends this angel, and the angel gently touches him. It's not a rough touch. He doesn't strike him. He doesn't rebuke him. He wakes him with this touch and with a meal ready for him. Elijah's been without the word of God, it would seem, and so God sends a messenger. He sends his word by way of this messenger, and it's not much. Arise and eat. But Elijah hears that word, and he believes and he obeys. It is a clear command, and it brings blessing and life. And this giving of life, this sustaining of life, is a major point that I want you to see and that I want us to think about here think about it Elijah asks for death but what is he given he's given life he prays to die but God does not give him that God answers his prayer but his answer is no I want you alive I want to care for you I'm giving you food and buy that food life. I want to strengthen your body even as I care for your weak soul. And I just find this whole scene and this ministry of God through the angel to be beautiful and comforting. God does not rebuke this weary servant, He doesn't demand He explain, What's your problem, Elijah? He doesn't rebuke him for sinful fear, for his sinful prayer. He literally sends a gracious answer. God doesn't explain himself either. God doesn't say, well, let me tell you why I've planned it all out this way, Elijah. I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you why I didn't put Jezebel to death or or change your heart. I'll tell you why Israel is not running to me in this great revival? No. God doesn't do that either. He simply shows love for Elijah. He cares for his weak, weary body. but in doing so, he is ministering to this man's soul. He's showing Elijah his love. He is showing that he is still in control, that he's good, and he's gracious. He's not forgotten Elijah. He knows the situation in Israel. And instead of granting Elijah's request, he gives life. He gives love and care and strength. And you know that Elijah's desire to die, his prayer to die, will actually never be answered. This is unique about Elijah, but... God, in his abounding grace, brings Elijah from this life at the end of his life without death, it would seem. And we'll get there in weeks ahead. But I want you to think again, as you think of God's gracious response. I want you to think of this food that God provides. It seems simple and insignificant, but it is wonderful. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat, verse 6. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. We may underappreciate food. Maybe because it's everywhere for many of us. It fills our pantries, our refrigerators. It fills the, the farms and the pastures across our country. But food is a gift from God. And it's a particular way he communicates love and care and grace to his creatures, to his people. Food is a prominent theme in scripture. Think about it. Food was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. The Old Testament feasts and sacrifices involved food and taught God's people of his care and his blessing and of his ultimate provision in Christ. The promised land was rich and bountiful and flowing with milk and honey. The provision of food is a key theme in the life of Elijah. This is not the only time God has miraculously provided food. Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. We are taught to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are taught to pray for daily bread. We are called to taste and see Taste and see that the Lord is good. And we could go on and on. We're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Scripture, food is always meant to point us to the goodness and grace of God. To point us to our creator and sustainer and our redeemer. The one who gives life to both body and soul. And I think that is part of the purpose of of God providing food for Elijah here. Not only to strengthen his weak body, not only to strengthen him for the journey ahead, but also to let him taste and see the goodness of God when he was struggling so much to be able to see this. To let him taste and see the grace of God. To teach him to depend on God and his word and his salvation. Brothers and sisters, don't ever underestimate the gift of daily bread. The gift of food from God. The gift of the bread of life. The gift of the Lord's Supper. Or even just the simple blessing of a meal for weary, needy brothers and sisters. That happens a lot in this congregation, and it's beautiful and powerful. My own family has been blessed by just simple meals, even recently recently. Well, we could linger even longer here under this tree. But I want you to see how all of this points you and me to the good news. How this really points us to the one who can sympathize with Elijah's despair and with yours. First of all, there are many parallels we see here where we see glimmers of Jesus foreshadowed. Like Elijah, Jesus' life was also sought by wicked rulers. Like Elijah, Jesus was surrounded by hard hearts, refusing to repent and believe. In Elijah's day, they saw God's miracles of fire and rain, but in Jesus' day, they saw far more miracles. And they saw the Son of God in the flesh dwelling among them, but they rejected him and sought to kill him. Like Elijah, Jesus had times alone in the wilderness. Jesus had no place to lay his head. He had 40 days without food, and it was a time of great testing and temptation. Jesus also felt sheer physical exhaustion. Think of him sleeping at the bottom of the boat in the storm. Think of Jesus in Gethsemane. There his soul was sorrowful unto death. There he was in great agony. There he cried out to God and angels ministered to him and strengthened him. But unlike Elijah, Jesus had to taste death. Jesus had to die. Unlike Elijah who wished to die because of defeat, Jesus wished to die in order to conquer he was willing to die. He was willing to drink that cup, which, his father, which was his father's will, so that he might give life. Elijah could not save Israel. He could not bring life to those who were dead in their sins. But Jesus could, and Jesus has. Friends, is your faith in him? Are your eyes on him? Elijah prayed, Take away my life. Jesus said, I lay down my life. I give my life. Jesus did not run from death. He did not run from God's wrath. He did not run for his life. He gave his life. Elijah could not save Israel. He could not save you or me. He couldn't save himself. And none, and none of us can save ourselves either. Jesus can save. Jesus does save. Jesus has saved you if you have put your trust in him. And, brothers and sisters, we've seen already tonight Elijah was a man just like that. He was a man of great faith and courage and prayer, but he was a mere man. He was weak and sinful. Jesus is a man. Jesus has your nature. Jesus identifies with you. He sympathizes with you. Jesus was a man of sorrows, but he was also the God-man without sin who had come to rescue weak sinners. And as you picture this scene, as you picture the angel of the Lord sent from God to poor Elijah, I want you to think, of Jesus. At times, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is clearly the pre-incarnate Jesus in the form of a man, not yet in the flesh. Is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? I don't know. There's not a lot of evidence in the text, but at the very least, this angel points us to Jesus. Think about it. Jesus is was sent from the Father to us. He was sent to us alone in our sins, dead in our sins, lost and in despair. Jesus is the ultimate angel, the ultimate messenger, the ultimate servant sent from the Father, the ultimate prophet, the Word of God in the flesh. And Jesus comes and And doesn't just touch us as unclean sinners and give us a meal for one more day. Jesus comes and takes our flesh. And not only that, he takes our sin. And he takes our place and he willingly lays down his life. So that he can be the bread of life. And the water of life. So that we who deserve death are given life. We who deserve rebuke are given refreshment. We who deserve hell are given heaven. Brothers and sisters, when you hear bad news, when you face despair, when you sit under the broom tree like Elijah, remember the good news. Remember the ultimate answer. The ultimate hope is the good news of Jesus. The messenger, the savior sent from heaven for you. And as you may face times of despair in this life, or maybe you're facing such a time tonight. Remember Jesus. Look to Jesus. Yes, we see in this story the importance of God's word. We see the importance of not being alone. Think about how this story may have been different if he hadn't left His servant, that servant was likely a God-fear. What if he had brought him along with him and that man had been able to encourage him? But I want you to know that you are not alone. Jesus is with you. He knows you. The Holy Spirit is with you. God's people are with you. God's people will help. God's people want to help. And if you find yourself in a time of despair, ask for help. Maybe it's your parents or a friend or one of your pastors. Don't be afraid or ashamed to admit that you are in despair and you are struggling. Seek the Lord. Seek help. We are in this together. You can also see here the the importance of rest and, and strength for your body. But the most important thing I want you to see is that God is sovereign. His plans may not be yours. You may not understand them. But he is in control and he is good. And he is gracious. He is merciful to sinners. And we know that ultimately because he sent his own son, Who comes to us in our sin and in our weakness, in our brokenness. Who spreads a table before us and says, come and eat, feast on me. I will comfort you. I will give you life. Friends, God will not always answer us the way we want. He will not always grant our heart's desire as he did not for Elijah. He will not always bring the fruit or the deliverance that that we want. But if your eyes are on him, if your faith is in his son, he will give you life. He will give you eternal deliverance and joy and rest. He will give you comfort and peace. He will never leave you. He gives you himself, the bread of life, the water of life. He says, rise and eat. I am here. Have life. And so, brothers and sisters, in Despair. Remember, God is sovereign. God is good and he is full of grace. And you see that most in his son who he has sent for you. Remember Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you do know our frame our weakness, our sin, our despair. And you have sent the Lord Jesus to meet all of those needs, to give us life, to be the bread of heaven and the water of life in this weary world. Lord, give us the eyes of faith to see him and to trust in him. Let us understand that he knows us. He knows our frame. He sympathizes with us. He's sat under that tree, and yet he's also laid down his life for us. Lord, we pray that you would press these truths into our hearts. We pray especially for any who are weak or weary or despairing, that you would meet them and minister to them. We pray that you would work your grace in us, that we might be prepared for days like this by faith to cling to Christ, and we pray all this in his name, amen. Let's respond.